Hello. Hey, John. How are you today? Hi, Dan. How are you? Doing okay. It's still too warm here. Oh, uh, yeah. And we lost, wanna... we lost our Seattle rain. I can't talk about the weather uh, with anyone from the rest of America right now. Because You've got it great, right? It's amazing. It's been, it's, been, uh, it's been raining all week, but, you know, kind of in the high 60s. And now for the rest of this week, it's going to be, for the next whatever, 10 days, it's going to be 79 degrees. Oh, so nice. So nice. And with a light breeze off the water. So it's not, we got, we got nothing to complain about no. up here. I mean, how do you and beat that? I don't think We send can. everyone, everyone on our sympathies for all the, the, the heat waves and fires and droughts and mm. tornadoes. You don't, I mean, do you guys have anything like that? Like, do you get, yeah, I guess you could get a tsunami. Yeah, that's not really weather. Um, but we do, um, the last few years, you can't get earthquakes there. You don't have, we sure do. You do. We sure do. Yeah. That's the, the one thing, Dan, we're, we're teetering on the, on the edge of a very unstable plate that is long overdue for a major correction. That is one of, um, world historical proportions when the big one hits here you're going to read about it in the news because it's uh because it's going to send a wave to japan for one thing but yeah it's um it's something that we're all conscious of all the time here the i mean not the newcomers the people that have moved up here because they got some tech job in there and they're uh they've got a poster of a Lamborghini pinned to the pinned above the fireplace of their right. $2 million condo. <laughs> Those people don't know or care, but anybody that's ever lived, anybody that's lived here for, for uh, long enough to get integrated into the Northwest. Yeah. No, know, knows that it's, it's a ticking time bomb mm, mm. because you know that that's the tsunami and the volcano is always the volcanoes right there, Dan. I can see it. I can see it from here. There it is. But that's not an active. Uh, oh, oh, don't let it hear you say that. Don't let. Is don't that the Mount, that's Mount St. Helens? No, Mount St. Helens is genuinely an active right. volcano. It's smoke. There's a there's smoke pouring out of it right today. Can you, see, can you see that from your window? No, nobody can see Mount St. Helens. Just it's too intense to look at like God. No, it's weirdly situated in a place where. In you order kind of have to, to go go to it to see you it, you have to go to it. Yeah, like the Hollywood it's like, sign. Huh? Well, no, you can see the Hollywood sign from all over. No, it's like Devil's Tower. You can't see Devil's Tower from anywhere except for Devil's Tower. Have you been to Devil's Tower? I have. And you're driving, and it's just the normal America. It's here we are. It's the prairie, rolling hills, la da 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 da. And you turn a corner, and then Devil's Tower in all its majesty. Hmm. And you, and then you're there and you go to it and you deal with it and you, you try and fathom it. And then you get in your car and as you leave the parking lot and then it's gone and it's like, was it ever there? <laughs> but Mount St. Helens isn't visible from anywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then when you go there, it's like, whoa, mm. it's a head trip. But Mount Rainier is visible from everywhere. Mm. We can all see it. Everybody can see it in Tacoma. It looms over them like a, like Snoopy when Snoopy pretends to be a vulture. 
it's it's just right there. I mean, it it feels like it's right there in Seattle, but in Tacoma, it's really in their backyard or in their front yard, actually. And uh, sure, it's not an active volcano. Sure, mm-hmm. absolutely not active. Not right. at all active. Uh, and Mount St. Helens wasn't an active volcano until then it was. Hmm. So you've got volcanoes, you've got earthquakes, you've got potential for tsunami. That's all the, of those. All of, That's and, all. I mean, if everyone has the risk of fire, you have that. They, but, but those three things go together if it's the big one. If the big one happens, and if you went to anybody in Seattle, if you tapped them on the shoulder and said, when's the big one going to happen? Everybody would know what you were talking about. Yeah, There's sure. only one, the big one. Mm-hmm. And everybody's got a theory about it. There was a wonderful article in the New Yorker a couple of years ago mm-hmm. um, written about it. And uh, and it was just kind of you know one of those New Yorker articles about something where you feel like, wow, you got it all. Like you, you, you put it all in there. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, it's, uh, the article is written by Catherine Schultz, mm-hmm. who is a New Yorker writer. That's just, she, she, she graduated into that class of magazine article writers where it just feels like, well, now you can do whatever you want, I guess. Like, like she, every article she writes is, is phenomenal. They all require a bunch of research. She's just become a, and I met her a couple of times. I met her at a party. We were standing talking, just two people at a party. You know, what do you do? Oh, I'm uh, got a band. What's your band? Oh, the Long Winters. Oh, I love the Long Winters. Oh, great. What do you do? Oh, I'm a writer. Oh, where do you write for? Oh, I write for. She didn't write for the New Yorker at the time. She wrote for somebody, something Stan. And uh, and then when she got hired at the New Yorker, I met her again. And you know, and that's the type of thing you congratulate somebody for, right? Like, wow, you're writing for the New Yorker. That's cool. But the, you know, the people that write for the New Yorkers are like, oh yeah, I guess. You know, like New York people, right? But then she started coming out with these articles where it was like, well, now you're the greatest. You're my hero. And now I wish that I could go back to the times that I met her and. You know that thing where you meet somebody and you're like, oh, that's cool. And then later on, you're like, God, I wish I had <laughs> taken the opportunity yeah, like every time to say like 40 things to you mm-hmm. in quick succession because that because now like I'm an avid follower and you know, her just. Uh, but anyway, I recommend the article. The article is called how to stay safe when the big one comes mm. and it's from 2015 mm-hmm. Um, but it basically is an article written from inside my mother's brain because she and my sister are obsessed with the big one, Dan. They're obsessed with it. Like talking about it on a regular basis? Not just talking about it. They have, they have screwdrivers tied to pieces of string drilled into walls next to things that potentially might need a screwdriver in the event of the big one. Oh. They have... Uh, my mom bought a Sela meal, one of those Sela meals. You remember those? Right, where you put your food oh, into yeah, a plastic you, bag. Yeah, and, yeah, and it sucks the air out of it. and sucks the air out and seals it. She bought a Sela meal 
But in order to prepare little uh, gallon-sized disaster mini kits mm. with like some gauze and a switchblade and some fire starting equipment, oh, and, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but she made multiple of these. Um, she has, I mean, she doesn't right now because she lives in a two bedroom condo, mm -hmm. but in my house, she has stockpiled, uh, you know, enough, I mean, like survivalist level gear and she has a whole you know, we all sit down and talk about it. Where are we going to go when the big one hits? You know, we rendezvous it at, uh, at point alpha. And then we, you know, we move to, to point X coordinates. And if you can't get there, send a flare or tie this flag to the <laughs> tail of a squirrel or right, whatever. Sure. Rally points. Like, yeah. And I'm like, you know, listen, listen, li like every survivalist, you guys have gone bonkers and you're forgetting that when it happens, Everybody else in the world will be focused on helping Seattle. Mm -hmm. There's not a situation where the big one's going to happen. We survive and are in good enough shape to rendezvous at point alpha, but then we'll also have to forage for food for a year. Mm. Like people from San Francisco will be arriving mm -hmm. within 24 hours mm. And then people from all over the world will come and they'll have all kinds of food for us. You know, I'm not saying that we don't need some gear and that we shouldn't be ready to feed ourselves and be prepared, but we don't need a year's worth of canned corn. Mm -hmm. Um, but they look at me like I, like, I don't know what I'm talking about. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm listen keep a year's worth of canned corn. I mean, the reason that I bought one of the reasons that I bought that 79 suburban was that it doesn't have any, um, like it's a completely mechanical vehicle, right? An electromagnetic pulse would have to be pretty pulsy to conk out the electrical system of that truck, especially since the electrical system just conked itself out and I've still got it running. There's, bar there's barely an electrical system in that truck. It now still what, runs. My understanding is that an EMP, it actually can fry the like the wires and stuff in there. It's not just that it like shorts the battery. Like it can, da it actually damages some of that. Under certain circumstances, you have to be like close enough. And I would think the EMP is going to be right over downtown Seattle if there is one. Well, like right but, overhead, like literally look up. That's it right there. Let me, let that's me, where I, I'm going to do it. That's where I'm going to do it. Well, you're not, you're not making these decisions, Dan, because mm -hmm. what we have here in, in uh, the Northwest is one of the very largest nuclear Real close to North Korea right there. I'm saying, but, but we have the nuclear submarine base here, yeah, which is not in downtown Seattle. It's oh, okay. over in Kitsap County. How far is that? Uh, far enough that it wouldn't be a, uh, like it, when the nuke, let's say when the nuke goes off yeah. over a banger submarine base. I feel like you're indirect. I feel like you're a target. I mean, yeah, we're a target, but not, not a target like 
I won't have a chance to get down into my bomb shelter. Um, you know what I mean? Like it's over the, the base is over there. Yeah. It's not right here. And, um, you probably have a two to three minute lead time. Let's see. Let's see. Maybe, uh, bomb radius banger naval base yeah there's that one website that lets you pick, uh, pick the the location and it shows the different uh you know like you want to do a minuteman missile hitting there how far is the radius how long do you have what's your prognosis for radiation you know that site right. it's a really cool site i haven't been there this says gonna, that I'll send it to you. You're going to yeah, spend dude. the rest of the day looking at that thing. This says that Banger is 20 air miles mm. from Seattle. And it's not far enough. And it says that Banger is the largest nuclear weapons storehouse oh, yeah, in the enough. United States. You're not far enough away from that thing. One quarter of America's 10,000 nuclear weapons are at Banger. Oh, One quarter of <laughs> wow. It says Banger is possibly the largest oh nuclear weapons storehouse in the world. Whoa. In the world. 20 wow. on 20 miles away, huh? 20 miles away. Yeah. Mm, that's like nothing. Yeah. I could walk 20 miles right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, the, the nuke, the nuke subs, there are only two bases that have it's Banger and Kings Bay, Georgia. Hmm. Those are the only two places where all of those sub nukes are stored. And that's half of our strategic weapons. Mm. Huh? Hmm. Can well, you say that? I mean, can we say this? Is this common knowledge? Cause I don't want to get in trouble with the whoever. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, we know all this stuff now, okay. nowadays. All right. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I've got a bomb shelter here, and as I just explained, it's got a year's worth of canned corn, so I'm going to have to ride this one out. Yeah, man. yeah. That's the one. You know, it's not, it's not, the, it's not the, the big one. It's that one, whatever that is. Whoever manages to get the big one, the bomb, the big bomb, over to Banger. The big bo Banger bomb. Sarbamba. <laughs> Uh, the Zarbamba, that's going to, yeah, see, the that's going to strip the region. Need, they just need to pop an EMP off. They don't even need hmm. to do that in a high, a high atmosphere burst. Hmm. The EMP, they're not worried. They're not going to try and destroy any physical stuff. They don't want radiation. They just want to short out everything on the Western seaboard. Mm, they. Yeah. Whoever, they do. Whoever. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, effective. Radiation radius of a nuclear bomb. Uh huh. There's a whole website you got to find it where you type in. It uses Google Maps. You type in the address uh, or the location, lat long, and it will show you based on that. Like, okay, this is this is the damage that would happen if the same size bomb that was used on, let's say Hiroshima. And then you can say, well, what if this one was here? What if this next level one was here? What if yeah, it was a I want to see this two missile or whatever. I will spend all all day. Uh, oh, I'm going to find it. I'll find it. I'll send it to you right now. All right. Um, you know, Business Insider is a weird magazine. Yes, it is. My sense of Business Insider when I worked at the magazine store was just that it was like some Business Insider magazine, but now it has weird articles in it. Oh yeah. What's going on with that? 
Where did business, when did Business Insider become the one that was like, oh, do you want an interactive tool that allows you to see the effects of nuclear weapons? It's like, shouldn't that be in a different magazine? Okay, here it is. It is nuclearsecrecy.com. It's called NukeMap. And I'm sending it to you right now. So once you get this, type in that banger place and see if the effects of of an EMP or a bomb or whatever would reach you. Nuke map by Alex Wellerstein. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Well, I'm excited about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the, just exactly the type of thing that I yeah you're that I get, like. You're gonna get really into this. All right. Well, I'm not gonna do that right now because that's. that's well, I want you to those. put the one put the one address in and see the thing. Because I don't, you know, you do have to see yourself on the map. Because I I think it's gonna reach you. And yeah. on the drop downs on the right. You can pick a preset, and so like the preset could be, you know, well, that's just showing the cities, but underneath that, you can put in a yield in kilotons, and then you can also just pick. So, for example, you Hmm. could pick like the, well, they got the little boy, they got the gadget, fat man, they got um, like the cruise missile, the Minuteman, W87, I think is, is one you could put in. Well, here's one, here's a thing that infuriates me right out of the gate. Here are the cities that NukeMap thinks are like presets. Mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. and New York, you got to, you know, of course, right? Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, sure. Philadelphia, that's a big town. And then Boston, <laughs> which no one gives a shit about in a global <laughs> context. It's got the... Uh... Nobody's going to hall. Yeah, nobody's going to blow up the church tower where one if by land, two if by sea. I'll tell Nobody you what, if I, if, I was, about it. if I was going to be bombing parts of America, which I have no intention of doing and no interest in participating in, but if I was, Boston's number one on my list. I want that yeah. going. Okay, well, okay. If that we're accent? Talking about, if we're talking about what city would you like to blow up for personal reasons? I'm not sure, saying, Boston, I mean, this, I'm, not gonna, I'm not a, I'm a pacifist and I don't believe in bombs, but yeah. if I were to get rid of one city, that accent, that's number one for me. Oh, it's for me. It's not the accent. I was I was sleeping in my van one day. I mean, I've got fifteen <laughs> stories about being in Boston where I felt would, like punching somebody. Would Boston be at the top top of your list of places it's, you would get rid of? It's it's uh, in American cities. It's it's right up there in terms of having of me having anecdotes about it, uh, experiences, firsthand experiences <laughs> where I'm like, what the fuck was that? Uh-huh. I was sleeping in my van outside of a club one time, you know, like taking a nap before the show. Yeah. And I hear this sound like a rattlesnake and I wake up and I look out the window and there are two white guys, but dressed in like hip hop clothes and they're not young. They're 35 years old. Um, and they're standing right next to my van. And this is a thing when you're on tour and you got a van and it's full of gear and you're driving across America and you sleep in it, that we always had one guy sleep in it. And it was, it actually, it was a great, to sleep in the van was always great. It's just like, it's real easy. You know what the deal is. You're in your little, your little cocoon. You feel good about the fact that you're protecting the gear. And in the course of, the, of many years on tour, there are incidents where you wake up in the middle of the night and somebody or something is around the van that 
shouldn't be there or or you're glad you're in the van. I mean, one time out in the plain states, um, I woke up and there was somebody standing on the bumper. <laughs> and it was like, what are they doing? And I mean, I kind of waited, like, are they trying to break into the van? If they are, you know, this is the type of thing I love. Like, I'm going to be the last thing they want to see when they start trying to break in the van. He wasn't trying to break in the van. He was just standing in the bumper to get up high enough to look on the, <laughs> but it's in the middle of the night. Like what's he scanning for? Like, right. Is he looking for antelope? But these guys are right outside the van. They're fucking around. And you know, I was sick. That's why I was taking a nap and they didn't appear to be doing anything, making rattlesnake noise, whatever that was. Yeah. And then they got into some low rider BMW. Mm-hmm and uh and drove off you know and they just they had their baseball hats on kind of half sideways and <laughs> and uh were wearing gucci jackets or something the whole thing was like okay whatever boston and then later i go out and i realized they were tagging the side of my van the rattlesnake sound was them with a spray paint can oh no shaking it up and yeah oh man and they they tagged my van in the middle of the afternoon, well, evening, in the middle of the evening, like in Cambridge, out in front of this club. And these guys are in their 30s and they're driving a BMW. And the whole business of it mm-hmm. just made me go, you know what? That's so Boston. Right. There's something just like, and that's not what you think of when you think of Boston. You think of like, oh, everybody's in tri-corner hats or they're, you know, they're, it's like Norm or whatever you think of with Boston. Yeah. But when you really have any experience of it, it's like that, that is so Boston. But from the standpoint of global thermonuclear war, Dan, Mm. Boston has zero strategic importance. You're going to get a bunch of, you know, you're going to get, you're going to kill kill the Hodgman family or whatever. Well, they've, but the thing is, whoever's going to be sending the bombs over, they've got so many that it's not like they've got to pick and choose carefully. They just send them all. What I'm talking about right now is nukemap.com by Alex Wellerstein. Yes. Because Boston, this may surprise you, Boston and Seattle have the same population. Almost. I did not know that. Right down to the, right down to the wire. But one of those two cities mm-hmm. has the largest stockpile of nuclear weapons in the world. Right. And one of them has some middle-aged white dudes walking around in sideways Gucci baseball hats tagging mm-hmm. people's vans. Mm-hmm. But Seattle's not on this list. It goes Washington, New York, Boston, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, Philadelphia, and Honolulu. And let me tell you about Honolulu. Who cares? Who cares? I mean, Pearl Harbor, but honestly, at the point that you're sending ICBMs, Mm -hmm. like Pearl Harbor's relevance as the harbor. Yeah that is full of pearls or, or close to pearls. Right. Like nobody cares how many frigates you have when cities are being blown up yeah. by nukes. What they care is how many nuke subs you have, right? Not right. how many pickets you have or how many, you know, out of commission aircraft carriers. And so, and I'll tell you what, a, what a concentric circle from Hawaii looks like. It goes out into the ocean very fast. Mm-hmm. And honestly, if they blow up Honolulu, 
nobody really cares about Kauai either. Like, like maybe Zuckerberg is on some island out there, but no one gives a good goddamn. Why isn't my point is why isn't Seattle on this pull down list? I thought that's it where should, you were going. It should be right at the top, right at the top. Also, Seattle is very uh, topographically interesting from a uh, from a ground zero perspective because you got water, you got big hills, you got mountains, you got forests. It's not as simple as like, oh, Moscow. Yeah, here's a map of Moscow. Draw some concentric circles around it. But Seattle, you got to you got to account for all these different conditions. You know, if I went down into my ravine, yeah. The 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 explosion would just go right would just waft right over me. I mean, it set the trees yeah, on fire. Could, I mean, you could get below it. That's true. Yeah. Well, my entire bomb shelter right here. It was built for this very purpose. Was it really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I mean, it's a legit bomb shelter. Like that's what it's that's what it's for. Yeah. Yeah, it was built because this, you know, this neighborhood is uh, close to Boeing Field, which used to be the Boeing Aircraft Factory. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boeing aircraft are now made um, like everything that is not as good as it used to be. Boeing aircraft are made in factories around the world and then assembled here in Seattle. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't but, be a target either. No. Definitely not. But, There's no reason for any EMP to go off over you. But assembling airplanes is not the same as building them. And I don't know. I would say it's more important because you get everything together. Then you like smack the wings on, put gas in it, wheel it out. It's gone. Uh, Well, except that um, Boeing used to set a very high standard for American manufacturing. Hmm. Uh, and we, uh, and the, you know, there's a reason that Boeing aircraft spanned the globe for oh, sure, but then Boeing became a, a for-profit corporation. Now it always was for profit, mm. but it became one of those corporations that was being run by people that thought that business was the business they were in. Ah, right. They weren't in the business of making airplanes. They were in the business of business. And so they offshored and they downsized and they delegated and they built factories in Tennessee or wherever you build factories. They, you know, they probably took over the old Saturn car factory and gave all those people with their safety glasses and their head visors, um, new jobs, you know, some, somehow in America, we're always trying to keep people in Tennessee in manufacturing jobs. I don't know why that's so important to us. Uh, but they, you know, people, things were getting made in, in Italy. Things were getting made in Islamabad or whatever. And then it's all coming here and sort of fits together. And what you don't want with the airplane manufacturing is for stuff to sort of fit together. You want it all to really super duper fit together. Mm-hmm. And so we have been... But the Boeing Aircraft Company has been a cascading clusterfuck for the last 20 years. And they don't seem to get it. They don't seem to get it that they should have never tried to do this dumb thing that they've tried. They've lost hundreds of billions. I'm just going to say hundreds of billions. I don't even know if that's true. But they've lost hundreds of billions of dollars that they purportedly, you know, were trying to save 
tens of millions of dollars by getting out of Seattle and, and making airplane parts in Tennessee. What did Tennessee ever do for us? Not a damn thing. Um, now that's not, I mean, Nashville, it's music, a lot of good music might not be your kind of music or mine, but there's a lot of good music coming out of Nashville. Is there though? I think there I mean, was, there, there was there historically. Was. So it's sure, a historical, uh, historical importance then. Go with that. There was, there was a lot of great manufacturing coming out of Buffalo, New York at some point. Manufacturing though, doesn't bring joy to people the same way that music does. Oh, come on. Can oh, you I'm, tell me, can you tell me that the 1959 Cadillac Beeritz doesn't bring joy to people? Yes. No, it does. I, damn. Can, I can say that with extreme confidence. Look up 1959 Cadillac Beeritz. I don't even know how to spell that, let alone look, look it up. B-I-A. 1959 B-I-A-R. Oh, there it is. I. Look at that. Oh, Does that yeah, not strike well, joy yeah, in your heart? Yeah, it does. Sure. Yeah, it's okay. Okay. All right. All those things. All those things. They Look were made that. in oh, places the like- the tail fins on that or with the double- uh, Yeah. Okay. Okay. You're right. Cleveland. Oh my Buffalo. God. Look at this one in the, the bottom left. Oh no, this is a car I love. 1959 Cadillac Eldorado. Mm-hmm. That's the one to get right there. You know where those things weren't made? Tennessee. Where were they made? They, weren't, they were made in the, in the American industrial Rust Belt heartland. Of there were only 1,320 produced height of the era's design, striking black and red color combo, 345 horsepower, tri, uh, tri power, 390 CIV eight. 345 horsepower in 1959 from the factory. Yeah. Oh, this one sold for $324,000. I guess it's a little out of my. Yeah. They're freaking aircraft carriers. Those things. It's like 5k more than I wanted to spend. It sucks. (laughs) I know you would have gotten bid out right (laughs) at the end by somebody from the Peterson auto museum. I know. So it's forever. This thing is called fins forever. I don't, you know, I understand from a, like an American business perspective, perspective that we want to, you know, we want to bring business down to the hee-haws because they are, because they're a separate, because they're a third world country, no offense to my good friends in the American South. But, uh, you know, and I'm a Kentucky Colonel now. I finally was, uh, I was, I was, uh, given my Kentucky Colonelship I talked about it enough times on enough different platforms. Someone finally listened. Someone finally was not, I mean, people were listening. There were a lot of people in Kentucky who were Kentucky colonels themselves who were trying to get it. And I was, I was turned down, which was a little bit heartbreaking, but then someone finally pulled it off and my colonelship arrived. Unfortunately, not unfortunately, but you know, it's slight, puts a slight little, coloration on it that ken jennings also is a kentucky colonel Uh and he doesn't he barely understands what it is let alone appreciate it um i don't you know i'm not sure that you've talked about that on this show well the state of kentucky you know you know why colonel sanders is a colonel he's a he was a kentucky colonel colonel sanders never commanded any troops he was a kentucky colonel which is a honorary colonelship in the great state of Kentucky that is, um, you know, that is bestowed upon people who have done, 
humanitarian work or work that elevates the state of Kentucky. And, um, and it was a stretch. Oh, and it says here in this article, it says that um, the governor of Kentucky bestows the honorable title by issuance of letters patent under common law upon nomination by another Kentucky colonel or yes. by being recognized with the honorable title directly by the governor upon the recommendation of another. Yes. <clears throat> so what and do you, what, what rights are bestowed upon you or is it simply just a, an honorarium? Well, you can wear the, you can wear your tunic bedecked with the medals that, that accompany your Kentucky colonelship, which okay. of course I do have a tunic and it is bedecked with medals. Um, but I haven't earned, you know, there aren't that many, as I've talked, as I've descri described before, I have not won that many awards and even fewer of those awards came with medals. How did you get this thing? Cause now I want it. Well, so originally Jason Isbell, um, the, um, the music star mm. brought Kentucky colonelship to my attention. Mm -hmm. He said, I'm a Kentucky colonel and I think I can get you to be a Kentucky colonel. Mm-hmm. And I, th I th must have been aware of it before because somehow it came up in conversation between us. But he was right. like, you know, I'll I'll do this I'll do this work to try and get this for you because you you've done a lot of great work for the state of Kentucky, right? And you know, my father's uh, mother's family is from Kentucky, yeah, and they were prominent Kentuckians before the Civil War. Right. There's <clears throat> there are a couple of homes in Kentucky that have plaques out in front of them. Because they were owned by the by my honorable ancestors, right? And uh, they're not like they're not like in the center of Kentucky. No. I mean, I'm, geographically, they're in the center of Kentucky, but it's the type of thing where you would have to go down a state highway and then take a left on a on a on a county highway and then take a right on a county road, and eventually you would find these houses, and they'd have a plaque out front, but it's not like People aren't going there, really. Yeah. But still, <clears throat> I think in general, there are probably enough people listening to my programs in the great state of Kentucky that um, that it could be argued that, and, and you know, and, and my albums, it could be argued that I have uplifted a certain small proportion of the people in the great state of Kentucky. Mm. But really what Kentucky colonelship has evolved into is <clears throat> it's kind of like, um, it's like the Rotarians. You, you receive this honor from the, from the governor and then you go out and hang out with other Kentucky colonels and build, um, build birdhouses or help send kids to, um, their, semester overseas or, you know, it's a, it's a, a, a community benef benefactor type thing. But unlike a lot of, well, no, wait a minute. I was about to say unlike the Rotary Club, but in fact, the Rotary Club hands out medals like they're going out of style. My dad has so many medals from the Rotary Club, including one in a blue box that's like a, it looks like the Nobel Peace Prize. It's a <laughs> giant it's called the, you know, the Ernest uh, Schmedrick Award for humanitarian work or something. He's got all these. My dad had so many medals because he came from a time when they granted, they, they gave you a medal if you did something. Yeah, my granddad, um, who's obviously older and everything, he had received many, many, many medals. 
Yeah, medals. Medals. We don't we don't give out enough medals. You know, you the, uh, people make you buy a challenge coin now. That's not even a thing you should be able to buy. A challenge right. coin is something you have to get from somebody. Sure. Otherwise, it's just a thing you bought. Yeah. And that's not to that's not to to uh, denigrate anyone who bought a challenge coin, because I think they're wonderful pieces of swag. But when you know when Friendly Fire had had challenge coins made i said you know what you do is you carry them in your pocket and when you meet somebody that's like hey i love friendly fire you shake their hand and you palm them a a challenge coin that's the point of them Mm -hmm. um but then you know the guys were like or you could sell them on your website and i was like yeah yeah i suppose i suppose you could and and anybody that that has one of those let me tell you those are a collector's item if you come up to me and show me your friendly fire challenge going god Mm -hmm. bless you i'll give you a kiss on both cheeks right so as a kentucky colonel i feel also a little bit um a little bit prejudicial about tennessee yeah because well first of all tennessee is it gets all the press because of freaking nashville and memphis right kentucky can't really rival either of those can you name a city in kentucky dan Nope. Think about it. Nope. <laughs> Can you name any town of any size in Kentucky? I mean, about I, no. Something Kentucky. I wouldn't even, couldn't even tell you where the Kentucky Derby takes place. It takes place in Kentucky. Well, yeah. At Churchill Downs in Kentucky. So there you go. The, the, the largest, the largest towns in Kentucky are Louisville, Louisville. Louisville. There okay. Go. See, I got, got one. There. there I go. If I knew I was in, had it in there somewhere. And you pronounced it right. Louisville, Kentucky yeah. and Lexington, Kentucky. Lexington. Yeah. Now my people are from the region around Danville, Kentucky. Oh, I like that place. That sounds perfect. Yeah. It's a nice place. Perfect. Uh, uh, bluegrass. Mm. music oh, Kentucky, Kentucky blue bluegrass yeah it's arguably from the mountains there sure uh, anyway Kentucky does not get Kentucky is kind of in that um, I mean you hear more about West Virginia than you do Kentucky it's surrounded by states that get more press Indiana Ohio right. sure you know you hear about these things you don't hear about Arkansas very much there's not a lot ever since Bill Clinton <laughs> It's not, Arkansas is not in the papers. Right, no. Like it was. Mm-mm. But yeah, I'm infuriated at the, at the Boeing company. It, they have, they have desecrated the Northwest by being such a bumbling clown car of business fools. Mm. You know, you should go anywhere around America or anywhere around the world and see that Boeing aircraft and go, yeah, God damn it. Yeah. Mm. Look at it. It's a thing of beauty, and we let Airbus into the game. I don't know how. We should have shot them down right out of the gate. But they managed to get their foot in the door, and now look at them. They're thriving. They're doing a great job. People people in Dubai are like, yeah, let's buy some Airbus. And they're fine. You get them, and they're fine. They're, they're nice in there. Like Bombardier, how did they get into the game? They should never have gotten out of Canada. <laughs> and it's just because Boeing took their eye off the ball because they're like, oh, yeah. Well, and the thing is, Boeing's making so much money selling um, laser 
satellites and, mm-hmm. and cruise missiles and all that stuff that you don't even see. Mm-hmm. Who knows where they make cruise missiles? I'm sure somebody listening is like, I work at a cruise missile factory. I worked at a company that designed them. You did. Mm-hmm. Coleman Research was the name of it, and Coleman Aerospace was like the division that uh, made them, made the missiles. I don't know. I mean, they used to do tests. They used to do missile tests out in like, you know, 30 minutes from where I was working. I didn't do well, anything with that. I just ran the like IT stuff, the computer stuff. I love that stuff. And it was like they had like a lot of the people that worked there had higher level clearances because they were working. I mean, it was a government contractor, but they they did missiles. Well, and all that stuff, you know, when you look at the top, you look at the top uh, businesses in the United States, mm-hmm. the ones that aren't insurance companies and um, medical right. stuff mm-hmm. and aren't oil companies are they're you know they're defense contractors general dynamics mcdonald douglas mm. um and boeing went around and bought a bunch of them which is again a thing that you're like stop doing that let mcdonald douglas alone uh but somebody's building it's raytheon probably that's building all these missiles but they keep that secret and then boeing makes all this money and then they screw up. They make a 737 that they can't get the right part for. And then a couple of them crash because they because the computer program was was uh, FUBAR. But then the people that made the computer program are like, it wasn't FUBAR. The, the, the computer program was fine. It was something else. It was some other thing. You know, they're kicking the football around at Boeing headquarters. And meanwhile, the 737s, I don't know if you know this, but they were the the – the assembly line can't stop. If you stop the assembly line, then I don't know what the concrete hardens or something Mm. and you can't get it started back up. Can't shut it down. Dan. Once you start it, you can't stop it ever. Well, I don't know if you stop it, you know, if you stop it, then uh, the, you know, the, the specific gravity of the Northwest changes and it's, and it precipitates a tsunami for whatever reason, you got to keep the assembly line going. So the assembly line. So in normal times, what happens is you're making airplanes, you're making airplanes, you're testing them. And the assembly line works like you start at the beginning and an airplane is just a twinkle in somebody's eye. And then someone takes two parts out of a bin and they stick them together And that's the beginning of your airplane and they stick them together and they pass them to the next person. And that person sticks two more things on it. And pretty soon it starts to look like an airplane. And in the case of a lot of these planes, in the 737, they actually make the body somewhere else in the country, probably Tennessee. And then Mm. they put them on giant mayor's income, Tennessee, mayor's income, Tennessee, Yeah, right? Some holler somewhere. And then they ship them across the country in these giant trains. Each rail car has one green painted fuselage from a, three, a 737. And the trains snake their way across the country. There was one famous one that derailed and fell into a ravine. <laughs> and the ravine was full of aircraft fuselages 
they were like they were like pickup sticks. <laughs> they were down in the river, fuselages everywhere you looked. But so every day you're here in the Northwest and you get stopped at some ding, 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 train crossing while 25 airplane fuselages go by on their way to the plant. Now, the plant up north in Everett that's making the big, the jumbo jets, the 4.7s and the 7.7s and the 8.7s, they're doing something else up there. I don't, you never see those, those, those fuselages wouldn't fit, fit on a train. But neither one of these factories can you stop it. And so what they do is as they're moving the airplanes through, if something fails a test, if there's like, oh, wait a minute, this light should go on and it didn't. Right. Because they're real good at that. You know, the engineers up here, if I went outside of my front door and swung a cat, I would hit three Boeing engineers. So (laughs) if they can't fix it, on the assembly line, they don't have time to monkey around because there's another one right up its butt. And so they push the plane out the end of the assembly line. They can't stop. They can't screw around. And so then they're like, well, park it over there and we'll try and fix it. And if they can get it in the air, they actually fly it down here to Seattle. And there's a whole like, what's the matter with your plane crew that lives at Boeing field and they'll fix your plane that you couldn't fix on the assembly line. They'll actually fly it down here and, and like go over it again. Cause you can't, you can't park it out front for long cause there more are coming. But what happened with the three seven is that they had some, they had some foobar part that they couldn't get. And so they started stacking these planes up. And then kept stacking them, kept making them, can't stop making them stack, 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 stack. So pretty, pretty soon. And this is true right now. Every abandoned lot in the Northwest is full of parked seven, three sevens in all of the, the livery of all the air, the airlines of the world. One after another, parked as close to each other as you can get them, fill, filling up acres and acres and acres of land. And they keep making them. And they're waiting for whatever company it is in, in, in Israel or wherever they're making the little, the little fucked up part that keeps the planes from bursting into flame in midair. Yeah. Um, they're just waiting for these to arrive, and I don't know what the problem is. Somewhere else, some other people couldn't figure out how to get this made right, and then they ran out of, you know, stupidium, and so then they had to go mine stupidium, but there was a revolution in that country, and so they're, you know, they had to find a new supply, but Vladimir Putin is sitting on a throne made out of stupidium, and we can't get it. I don't know what it is. You know, I read Business Insider just as far as like the first time there's a pop-up that says, would you like to subscribe to Business Insider? And then I force close. (laughs) So I never get down to the bottom of the article where it's actually telling me what the problem is. And frankly, I don't care. I know what the problem is. Yeah. They didn't make it in Seattle. That's the problem. They should have made it here where people know what they're doing. People here know, because the thing is here, if it doesn't fit, you go to the guy next door or you go to a, you go to the, you know, those scenes in the movies where all the astronauts wives are 
1962. They're all having a cocktail party and serving jello salad. And uh, the astronauts are out front, standing yeah. in front of their Corvette, yeah. smoking cigarettes. Right. And yep. Yep. The kids are running around. That's what it was out here mm. for decades. All these Boeing engineers with pocket protectors and crew cuts, and they're you know, and they're uh, they're like bouffanted wives smoking cigarettes. But that was why the planes flew. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a little frustrated right now because I'm in a I'm in a situation with American business, American banking specifically, and the depth of their depravity is revealed to me. You know, we talk about banks and we and we we grimace at them, but you know, a bank doesn't really intrude in your life most of the time until it does. Yeah. And when it does, you're like, really? This is how you're running this country and the world, you bastard? So the other day, my mom, who is 87, and she has an apartment in the center of Capitol Hill, which from day to day sometimes seems like it's going to secede from the union and form its own republic. Hmm. She's living up there, and she's you know, we've all moved to the suburbs, which is the opposite of how this should have gone. Mm -hmm. And she's been committed to her revolutionary stance up there. And at 87, you know, she's still hale and hearty, but there's just a little bit of a looking into the future where you're like, now are you going to be 95 and living on Capitol Hill by yourself while your granddaughter and everybody else is living out here in the trees? Is that really your plan? Because mom, I'm, I just am not sure that that is a long-term strategy. And unlike my dad, I mean, you couldn't tell my dad anything, but you can tell my mom even fewer things than you could tell my dad mm-hmm. in terms of like, here's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Both of them were like, no, here's what's going to happen. <laughs> and you go, I mean, it's not like my sister and I are shrinking violets. Right. It's just, you couldn't do anything. I mean, I finally took my dad's car away from him by saying, Hey, let me see those car keys. They look really cool. <laughs> you know, I was yeah, like, yeah. oh shit, he left them unattended on the counter. Like, grab them. And then he was like, what do you mean I can't drive? What do you mean? And I was like, you're you freaking driving up on the sidewalk. And he's like, well, that's what it's there for. <laughs> but with my mom, so anyway, we've been encouraging her to try and move down to the south end where we can not keep tabs on her. She's just, she's more around, you know, and, and frankly, less likely to drive off of a bridge as she gets older because neither my, this is the thing I hope, I hope, I hope my dad doesn't hear this from beyond the grave and I hope my mom never hears it, but frankly, neither one of them were that good of a driver. They both loved their cars. Mm. They loved to drive, but neither one of them was a very good driver. And honestly, my sister loves to drive and she's not that good of a driver. Either. When you say not good, I mean, what do you, what does that mean? My like sister they can't, is too, they can't stay in their lane or they make bad mm, choices or just like the, the physical dexterity thing or what? For me, I feel like the lanes on a highway are there as general guides, but they're not, it's not like, oh, stay in your lane. It's like, yeah, the lane, there it is. We all see it. You know, you move around in the lane. That's my, 
that's my general feeling about it. I get pulled over sometimes by state troopers who are like, how much have you had to drink? And I'm like, nothing. I haven't had anything to drink in 30 years or however long, 25 years. And they're like, well, you were weaving all over. And I'm like, well, you know, there's a lot of play in this steering wheel and there's no, there's nobody around. It's just you and me and the, and the, and the fucking birds. What are you so uptight about? And they're like, well, you know, the lane. I'm like, yeah, yeah, the lane. So are you saying that being a good driver is, is weaving in your lane? No, but in every other respect, in my, in my estimation, being a good driver is being hyper aware of the other drivers that are all around you, hyper aware of what they're doing, what they are indicating they're going to do. As I drive down the road, I assess every other car on the road and I go, this car is behaving, suggesting that the person in it is looking at their phone. This mm. car is behaving, suggesting that the person in it is almost too drunk to drive. This person does not know that there are other cars on the road. This person believes that the speed limit is real. You know, like you're just looking at everybody trying to figure out what they're going to do. And that is what keeps the, the, keeps the whole thing running. Because as I drive, nobody's going to surprise me with any weird thing because I've already, I've already peeped them and I, I know when the weird thing happens, I know who it's going to be. And I am generally, there's always somebody that's going to screw this game up and be just driving like a normal person. And then all of a sudden they have a heart attack or whatever. But you know, my sister is a very aggressive driver. She's looking at what everybody else is doing, but what she's, but she has a plan, which is to get around them. Mm -hmm. And so she's only aware of what they're doing as part of her scheme, which is to get past them. My mom is, she's driving, she's a defensive driver, but she's driving as though it is, I mean, basically she's driving as though it's a game where other people are going past you and you are trying to, it's like Frogger for her. You know, you're trying to get from this lily pad to that lily pad mm. and there are logs and crocodiles. And then my dad drove like he took his living room and he put wheels on it and he was going to get from, from point A to point B in his living room in a kind of like in a masculine way. He wasn't going to get out of anybody's way. He wasn't going to get in anybody's way. He was going to get from here to there. And he was going to listen to an eight track tape of Stan Getz and have a good old time. You know, I'm, I'm, when I say not good drivers, I just mean, I don't mean bad drivers like Adam Pranica of, uh, of friendly fire fame. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Adam Pranica is a really good driver. He just, he knows what his car is doing. He knows how it's going to behave. He's watching everybody. He want, when he wants to go fast, he does it very intentionally. He's like, no, I'm going to go fast. Now I'm going to see what this thing, what this baby can do. But Adam's not weaving in and out of traffic. You know, he's like very deliberate, great driver. Anyway, I'm trying to get my mom out of Capitol Hill. 
And she found a little condo down here in the great city of Burien. And she said, and this is after years of keeping her eye on it, on the, on what's available in Burien. She finds this little thing and she says, I could live here. Mm. And this is exciting. Cause I'm like, okay, you know, when my mom turns 88, um, and she's down here, that will be better for everybody. So I say, well, why don't we move you to this condo? Sure. And then, you know, she gets excited. So then the process begins. And what we discovered when she sold her house was that banks will, <laughs> will not give a 30-year mortgage to an 87-year-old. Right. But what that means is they don't, um, and this is particularly after the, after the financial crisis of 2008, they don't care. You know, they don't want to help you. Um, and so what that means is that if you're 87 and you want to move to a different house, you have to sell your other house and then get the cash and buy the new house with cash, which is a crazy thing. If you say to a bank, look, we have this, she owns this apartment on Capitol Hill. It's mm -hmm. worth X number of dollars. She wants to buy this house. It's worth X number of fewer dollars. You know that the, all these transactions are, are gonna, they're reliable and dependable. It's not hard to sell an apartment on Capitol Hill. How can you, as the bank, help us? Can you stand in the middle as a, as a building full of money and make this a smooth process. And the bank says, no, we cannot. So in order to move my mother, because I don't want her to sell her condo and live out of her car for a year and a half, like I did, I was going to step in and say, I'll co-sign. I'll be the, you know, I'll be the responsible party here because I'm not a building full of money, but I'm confident that this financial transaction will take place. And of course the banks are going to take fees out of every side of this. They're just not going to take any risk. They're going to take their fees. Well, the other day in attempting to make this business thing happen, mm -hmm. the mortgage broker called me and said the bank. So my mom made an offer on this uh, condo and it was accepted. And all of a sudden the balls are in motion. She's going to buy this condo and I'm the financially responsible party because I'm the one that, you know, that they want to attach all this to as the, as the person that 30 years from now, they could still be, you know, hammering with a boat paddle. Right. But the mortgage broker calls me yesterday afternoon and says, you and Ken Jennings did not incorporate Omnibus as a limited liability corporation mm -hmm. until 2019 or to, you know, mid 2019. And so your tax returns do not show it as a company long enough that we can take any of the income from Omnibus into consideration when we adjudge whether you 
are capable of this, capable of, of performing this transaction. That's and I say, dumb. well, I say Omnibus has been a, has been a show since 2017. And they say, yes, but you didn't, or, or they don't even say yes. They say, well, prove it. I'm like, well, go on the internet. It's there. It's been there the whole time. Well, you didn't. And Ken and I didn't form an LLC because the iHeartMedia network was paying us in birdseed. Mm-hmm. The iHeartMedia network, like once every six months, brought us a goat and said, here's your goat. Split it. It's like, how do you split a goat? Oh, I see. So we didn't incorporate because what would have, would have been the point? We didn't even think about it. It was only after we left iHeart that we said, oh, maybe we should form a corporation. But not soon enough, Dan. And so it's not a question of the money. They see that I make, I have, and only started making money from Omnibus after we got a Patreon. But it's just the, for, it's just the fact that we didn't incorporate. And they, this mortgage broker, Whose jo- it's right there in the title of his name of his job. He brokers mortgages, but he says I'm powerless to do anything because it's all done at the level of the underwriter. On and on and on. The point is, the point of this story is that nobody is in a, nobody has the authority to do anything. There, nobody's willing to take a risk in any direction. You can't even prove to them that. What is true is true. And they're running the world, Dan. The banks banks do run the world. My mom has made an offer on a condo. It's been accepted. And on one hand, I'm getting text messages and emails from all the people in the real estate business that are like, are you ready to close? Are you ready to put your your, um, whatever your... good faith money down? Are Mm. you ready to come, you know, come down and sign 50 pieces of paper? And on the other hand, there's a guy telling me that Omnibus isn't a real business and that there's nothing I can do to prove otherwise. And, you know, and I'm, and, and, you know, my mom is just, just all smiles. Like I'm about to move into this wonderful house. And I'm like, ah, yeah, but I don't, but I'm the only way it's going to happen. And I can't prove that I have any money. (laughs) 